of the 15th of May 1982, three Sea King helicopters lifted off the British aircraft carrier HMS Hermes in complete darkness. On board were 42 soldiers of the Special Air Service. Their destination, an enemy airfield whose position threatened the entire British landing force. Operation Prelim was one of the largest raids undertaken by the SAS since the Second World War. The success of the action could, British commanders believed, be pivotal in deciding the outcome of the conflict. The stakes were high. If the assault failed, not only would the British lose half their special forces capability, but also their entire invasion plan would be placed in jeopardy. The fact that command committed such a large number of their special forces in atrocious conditions to this single operation, an extremely risky gamble, showed how important it was to the British and how desperate they were for a successful outcome. Like any SAS raid, it was a huge roll of the dice. But as the regiment's motto says, who dares wins? And the troopers on board those helicopters had no intention of losing. They were the Punishers of Pebble Island. I'm Bruce Crompton, history lover, military antique collector and ex-paratrooper. In Amazing War Stories, you're going to hear about incredible actions, all taken from records housed in museum collections. It's only by unearthing these wonderful tales that I hope to support these important institutions, honour the heroes that sacrificed so much and help preserve their legacies for future generations. On the afternoon of May the 7th, 1982, a British Sea Harrier streaked through the sky north of the East Falkland Islands. Suddenly, the pilot heard an emergency squawk in his headphones. The plane's radar receiver registered a hit. And the gloom an enemy scanning system had switched on and had painted the Harrier. Taking evasive action, the fast jet returned to HMS Hermes, the British flagship lying just outside of enemy radar range to the north of the Falklands. This single, seemingly innocuous event would set in motion the largest Special Forces raid in British history. The Falklands conflict, as it's known in the UK, was one of the most ambitious military campaigns ever undertaken. Argentina had, seemingly without provocation, invaded the British territory of the Falkland Islands, 8,000 miles away. Despite the extreme distances involved, the British instantly responded and sent a huge task force to recapture the islands. However, being so far from home meant militarily 
the British task force couldn't afford to make a single false move. Resupplying men and equipment would be impossible in any meaningful time frame. It was to be a huge military gamble that would, should it fail, affect Britain's standing as a global military power to be reckoned with. In the world of historical military vehicles and armaments, most people know me through my collection of Second World War tanks, jeeps and weapons. But also I have a lot of artefacts and memorabilia from other conflicts, such as the Falklands. Many troops, when they come back from fighting overseas, bring back mementos taken from the enemy. Military museums up and down the country and all over the world are stuffed full with them. It's these items that helps bring history to life and make it accessible to all. One artifact I ended up with was an Argentine helmet from the Falklands War. I was told it came from Pebble Island, but I can't be sure, of course. However, whenever I hear the name of that particular isle in the Falklands archipelago, I get goosebumps. It was the location of an extraordinary SAS raid. It's funny how things crop up when you least expect them to. One day I got a call from one of my favourite museums, the Combined Military Service Museum in Malden. It really is a fantastic place to visit and its exhibits are jaw-dropping, especially their huge collection of special forces items, which charts their genesis from the Second World War straight through to modern day. Anyway, the museum was changing some of their displays and asked me whether I might be able to temporarily store one of their vehicles. Of course, I said yes immediately. When the curator Julie Miller arrived with a Land Rover called a Dinky, a few days later, I was thrilled. It was an honour to look after such an incredible artefact that was used in operations by Britain's most famous Special Forces unit, the Special Air Service. Julie is of course a wealth of knowledge and it wasn't long before we got talking about some of the SAS's more famous operations, including the heroic work in the Falklands. I think many people already know of the SAS's exploits in the Second World War, or perhaps their famous assault during the Iranian embassy siege in London in 1980. But not many people will be aware of their extraordinary action on Pebble Island a couple of years later. This was a highly daring raid that was full of risk, not only for the SAS, but also the British task force itself. What made it even more extraordinary were the atrocious conditions that threatened failure at every step of the way. Like any SAS attack, a huge amount of intelligence and planning is gathered beforehand, and it's the soldiers' daring and physical strength displayed during this part of the operation which makes this story so exciting for me. 2022 marked the 40th anniversary of the Falklands conflict, an engagement which was a very British affair. Indeed, I know many people that served there. However, the story I'm about to tell will resonate with listeners all around the world. It's a tale of bravery, heroism, and willingly putting yourself in harm's way, even when the odds are seemingly stacked against you. 
Remember, everything you're about to hear is true, no matter how extraordinary it sounds. For a rare moment, the commander of the British Task Force, Admiral Sandy Woodward, sat alone in his cabin on the British flagship HMS Hermes. Outside, the weather was causing the waves to spray against the portholes, and the enormous aircraft carrier crashed up and down as it ploughed its way through the rough sea. But these elements didn't even register with the naval officer. Instead, his mind was occupied with the radar that had pinged the Harrier. It was a source of great consternation. Analysis of the hit apparently showed the emission had come from Middle Mount on Pebble Island, a small isle to the north of the Falklands. If there was a dedicated radar there, which intelligence thought there was, then not only would the task force be at threat, but the proposed landing area in the Falkland Sound would also be in jeopardy. If the attack was spotted before the troops could get ashore, then it would be a disaster. Woodward therefore needed that radar neutralised before he could begin his operation to take back the remote British outpost. He absolutely had to find out what the Argentinian presence was on the island, and quickly. Dr Chris Mann is the head of the Department of War Studies at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. He explains the challenges the British faced in retaking the Falklands. The British military response to the Argentinian invasion of the Falklands was a remarkably daring, complex and logistically demanding venture. The risks involved in launching Operation Corporate, as it was codenamed, were immense. If the task force failed, there would be only one outcome for the British, a total military and political defeat. The recapture of the Falklands would obviously have to be mounted from the sea. Given the scale of the task, a naval force based around the two aircraft carriers, HMS Hermes and HMS Invincible, was assembled. The protection of the carriers was paramount. Indeed, it was readily understood that to lose the carriers would be to lose the war. As it turned out, the Argentinian Navy, although there were concerns about its submarines, was not the major threat to the task force. Rather, it came from the Argentinian Air Force. Given the vulnerability of the fleet, it was deemed vital to stay out the range of any Argentinian radar based on the islands. Air and naval superiority was considered a necessary prerequisite for any successful amphibious landing at the time. Indeed, it still is today. The US Navy considered the chances of a British counter-invasion succeeding, and I quote, a military impossibility. On the 10th of May, Admiral Sandy Woodward walked briskly into the cramped pilot's briefing room on HMS Hermes. Morning, gentlemen. So what An ex-submariner, the softly spoken task force commander, never wasted words. His steely blue eyes reflected his determined personality. And despite being tough, his men loved him. The small, dimly lit room was stuffed with senior officers, including Commodore Clapp, commander of the Amphibious Warfare Task Group, and Brigadier Julian Thompson, commander of three commando. Also present was a more junior officer, Captain Ewan Houston, commanding officer of SASG Squadron. Yes, sir. He had a good relation with the Admiral, 
and so had become the unofficial liaison between the Navy and Lieutenant Colonel Mike Rose, commanding officer of 22 SAS, who was based on HMS Fearless. Matt Hellier is a former SAS warrant officer and has been on operations all around the world. He knew many of the SAS men that went to the Falklands. In 1982, the SAS had four Sabre squadrons, A, B, D and G. Each squadron had four battle groups, which are called troops. Each of the four troops had a speciality. Air Troop specialises in air insertions, parachuting. Mountain Troop operate above the tree line at any temperature. Boat Troop is the amphibious warfare troop. It uses the UK's biggest strategic asset, the Navy. Mobility Troop are not only experts in vehicles, they're also experts in heavy weapons. In the Falklands, to start with, there were two Sabre squadrons, D and G, each from 2-2 Special Air Service. They totaled around 140 men. The Admiral had called the meeting for an update on efforts to find out exactly what was on Pebble Island. RAF Nimrods had been sent from Ascension Island, over 3,000 miles away, to see if they could pick up any more information electronically. And Harriers, fitted with nose cameras, had undertaken risky flybys to see if they could photograph anything. The intelligence they received was deeply worrying. There was no sign of a radar on any of the pictures, but they did reveal something equally as dangerous. The Argentinians had amassed a group of deadly ground attack aircraft called Pucara on the island. Pucara were just the type of plane which could easily destroy slow-moving landing craft as they made their approach. The mood in the room was tense. The senior officers were clearly rattled. Earlier that day, HMS Sheffield had been sunk by an Exocet missile fired from an Argentinian fast jet. It was the first Royal Navy ship that had been lost in 37 years. The fleet and any troop landing crafts were extremely vulnerable to air attacks, so the thought of a dedicated radar with accompanying planes searching north of the Falklands understandably spooked the Admiral. Not only that, Intel had also gleaned that there was a significant presence of Argentine army engineers at the base. Could they be converting the island to support even more assets that would decimate any approaching landing force? Frustratingly for the Admiral, it also appeared that there was a small British civilian population still present on the island. They were located in a house right by the airstrip, which totally ruled out a bombing attack to eliminate the runway or enemy assets. So the only alternative was a ground assault or naval bombardment, both of which brought considerable risks to the fleet. Either option would mean ships having to come well within enemy radar range to drop off troops or fire ordnance. Before they took a decision, they needed more intelligence. Commodore Clapp and Admiral Woodworth both agreed nothing could be eyes on the ground. They had to get men there. Intelligence briefings, as banal as they sound, are the bedrock of any military operation. 
The challenge the commanders faced in 1982 was that getting usable intelligence was very, very challenging. In those days, there were hardly any military satellites, so communication still required line of sight. In the end, the safest way of getting meaningful intelligence was putting men on the ground. Captain Houston, the most junior officer in the room, cleared his throat <coughs> and all heads turned to look at him. Sir, might I suggest that we could utilise... He suggested that perhaps the SAS had some spare capability. The SBS and the entirety of G Squadron were already fully deployed, but Major Dell's D Squadron would in part be available for a recce and a potential raid if required. Tell me more, responded Woodward with a glint in his eye. The steely ex-submariner was used to taking calculated risks and something like this appealed to the buccaneer spirit deep in his soul. On the flight deck that evening, a Sea King from 846 Squadron was doing its final pre-flight checks. The pilots would be using night vision goggles, which would enable them to fly just above the sea to avoid being detected by enemy radar. They were one of only four Sea King helicopter crews in the entire task force that had this capability so are not only extremely valuable, but also in continuous demand. The plan for the Sea King was to drop a small team of SAS troopers onto West Falkland, adjacent to Pebble Island, in complete darkness. The tough men from D Squadron's boat troop was led by an equally hardy Captain Tim Burles, originally a parachute regiment man. After insertion, Burles and his men would canoe around a body of water called Port Purvis to a lie-out point on the edge of West Falkland, a place the locals called Whale Bay. There, they would spend the daylight hours hidden, observing the straits ahead of them. Once darkness had descended, they would then once again take to their canoes, cross the bay and land at a location opposite called Phillips Cove on the eastern side of Pebble Island. The cove was four miles as the crow flies from the enemy landing strip. Once on land, they would head to the interior, find the radar location, assess enemy strength, confirm the number of planes and fuel dumps, then report back. Captain Tim Burles manhandled the last of the four Klepper canoes across the flight deck and onto the Sea King. Helped along by second in command, Star Sergeant Chippy Carpenter. The Klepper was a frame canoe, meaning it could be collapsed at will in order to be carried or stowed. It was a big bit of kit, each one weighing over 50 pounds. As well as the canoes, the men carried with them provisions for several days, cold weather gear, ammunition, weapons, and most importantly, their oversized field radio. Communications in 1982 were still strangely antiquated. Despite the Americans giving the SES the latest hardware and radios that linked up to satellites, the soldiers on the ground still used encrypted Morse code to give sit reps situational reports. 
Not easy when your hands are freezing, the wind is blowing. As a result, sit reps in Morse were often short and to the point, sometimes on the verge of being cryptic. Today, on the battlefield, we have drones, near-perfect communications, so information can be assessed nearly instantly and fed back to the soldier. Major Dells and his second-in-command, Captain Danny West, watched the eight-men recce team load up. West went up to open the door of the helicopter and shouted to be heard above the sound of the wind and the whine of the engine. Remember what I said in Georgia? Remember what I said in Georgia, he said. The Argies are just like us, so punch clean and no unnecessary use of violence. The men responded with a thumbs up. The seeking blades whipped up a spray from the deck and the helicopter seemed to struggle for a second to lift the weight. Then it ascended off the ship and with a quick wave to West, Burles and his men flew off into the darkness. The Major and his 2IC went below decks to join Squadron Sergeant Major Laurie Gallagher to wait beside the radio in the ops room. It was going to be a tense few days. An hour later, the Sea King hovered just feet off the ground at Purvis Point. To their knowledge, they hadn't been detected during the flight in. The journey over had been rough and unpleasant, the wind strong. The eight men jumped out, and after seeing the helicopter off, they waited to ensure they hadn't been detected. The coast apparently clear, they started to move the considerable amount of kit to the shoreline. Once there, however, it was clear they weren't going into the sea. At least not tonight. No way we can get into that mess, sir. The waves were far too big to canoe in. Captain Burles made the decision they were going to have to go overland to the LUP. Burles and his men had to make the four-mile journey three times. Once to take their kit to the LUP at Elephant Cove, and then that return to retrieve their canoes. It took them all evening. People often wonder why the SAS selection is so testing, and I think this is a great example why. Tim Bells was able to make the tough decision that if they were to keep on schedule, then it meant going the hard way, carrying their significant kit overland across extremely difficult terrain and in the pitch black. If they weren't up to this task physically, the operation would have failed. Exhausted, the following morning, the men rested and waited at Elephant Cove. The foul weather continued all day, but then, as suddenly as the storm had hit, abruptly it stopped as night fell. The men made their move and paddled across the sound to make it to Pebble Island. Getting ashore, they hid their canoes and Bergen rucksacks. Captain Burl crouched down and touched the sandy cove. This was going to be strong enough to take the weight of four or five helicopters, he thought. It was a good start. Unslinging his M16, he and the seven men set off in the darkness towards the enemy airstrip. Hello. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Amazing War Stories. I'm Ed Sayer, co-founder and producer of this show, and I just wanted to tell you about our new website, amazingwarstories.com. Inside, you can find out more about our podcast, 
take a deep dive into some of the weapons and equipment used by our heroes, or you can sign up to our awesome newsletter where we give you the lowdown on military museums, host fun reader polls, and of course, feature little-known amazing war stories that Bruce and I have come across during our research. So after you finish listening, please take time to visit. And if you think you have an amazing war story you'd like us to feature, then do get in touch. Just click on the link on our show notes. AmazingWarStories.com, the home of military heroes. Several hours later, lying down amongst the tough, heather-like bushes the locals called Diddledee, Captain Burles unfolded a radio mask. The recce had gone well. Tim had observed the troop movements, which was very little, counted the planes, identified the fuel dumps and worked out an attack plan for a raiding force. There was no sign of the enemy engineers and the Argentinians didn't seem to be reinforcing the landing strip. There was also no anti-aircraft weapons, no patrols taking place and virtually no visible defences save for a few wires around the western perimeter of the base. Maybe the bad weather had stopped the engineers. Most importantly of all, there seemed to be no radar. However, there was an equally big prize to be had. 11 planes, six of them deadly Picaras, which could definitely hamper or even stop a landing invasion on the West Island. The other aircraft were transport or reconnaissance planes. It would be a great haul. In fact, Burles believed the place was wide open for an attack. The only fly in the ointment was that radio comms, which required line of sight, would not reach back to the landing zone. To fix this, he had established a radio relay position near the top of the hill, which, if the raid happened, would double as a mortar base to provide covering fire. Getting his Morse code transmitter he sent the following message. 11, repeat 11 aircraft, believed real. Squadron attack tonight. LS Phillips Cove, send ETA. Back on HMS Hermes, the radio sprang into life and the burly squadron sergeant major translated the message to Major Delves. Looks like we're on, sir. Before you go on a mission, before you execute that mission, you have a number of emotions. The SAS isn't about nervous energy or playing a game of football or getting in a boxing ring. It's about killing people. This is an emotion that you will not feel, you will not experience in your lifetime. So the emotions that you feel are a mixture of being scared, being nervous, being excited, and then being elated. It's an overpowering emotion. On board the fleet's flagship aircraft carrier HMS Hermes, senior officers crowded around a mahogany table in a small compartment behind the bridge. Underway was a daily meeting, which was known as evening prayers, where the day's events and upcoming operations and manoeuvres were discussed with the Admiral and his senior officers. Thank you, gentlemen. Right, next The up. gathering could barely be contained in the room and these squadrons, Major Delves, along with acting Major Houston, were squeezed into the back. On the table was a giant nautical map, 
which Woodward would periodically point at as various orders and instructions were given. Next on the agenda was Operation Prelim, the codename attached to the potential SAS raid on Pebble Island. The Admiral informed those present that information just received indicated that there was a significant enemy presence on the island and that the SAS wanted to execute a raid to neutralise it. The plan was, whether permitting, for the Hermes to close in on the islands and to drop off 42 men of D Squadron in three seeking helicopters. Hermes was to be accompanied by two ships, a frigate HMS Broadsword with her anti-aircraft system and HMS Glamorgan, a destroyer. These two vessels would be the flankers that protected Hermes from any threat above or below water. The small flotilla would break from the main fleet in the early hours of tomorrow evening and head towards the island. Once on the ground, the SAS would assault the airbase, whilst HMS Glamorgan would create a diversion with a naval bombardment. Naval artillery spotters accompanying the raiders would ensure there were no civilian casualties. All would be accomplished by dawn, whereupon the entire flotilla would head back to the safety of the task force. The Admiral's quiet, calm voice made the whole operation sound so simple. Outside, however, the sea was protesting and was anything but calm. The waves churning as a false seventh gale forced the ship to buck up and down. May was the beginning of winter down in the South Atlantic. So when the task force arrived, they faced howling gales, rough seas and cold conditions, which were extremely challenging to operate in. And one of the key considerations was logistics. Moving in bad weather means it takes more fuel to fly jets, helicopters and move ships in rough conditions than it does in calm weather. This, in turn, has a direct impact on how many men you can fit in a helicopter. The more fuel needed, the less men and equipment you can take, the more risk the operation will fail. The only solution was move your capital ships closer to the objective so your choppers had less distance to fly to target. The captain of the Hermes, an outspoken South African called Lindley Middleton, questioned the Admiral on the soundness of this raid. He asked whether it was wise to once again take the flagship of the fleet deep into enemy waters relatively unsupported when there was a serious submarine and fast jet threat. A stunned and awkward silence fell in the room. Everyone present knew that if the flagship was sunk, the war would be lost. The Admiral held Middleton's eye with a steely gaze and answered simply and almost quizzically, Yes. Dr. Mann thinks this is a significant moment in the conflict. This is one of the most important, or at least risky, decisions I believe taken in the lead up to the landings. HMS Sheffield had been lost to an Exocet the day before, so the dangers of such a venture were very clear. Moments like this can have far-reaching consequences, even deciding the outcome of a conflict. Sandy Woodward thought the risk of exposing his ships was acceptable 
and the radar threat on the island, although unconfirmed, was just too serious to ignore, and it had to be eliminated. The CO of 22 SAS, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Rose, was putting considerable pressure on the Admiral too. The desire for action, any action, is very common amongst the military, and even more so amongst Special Forces. Rose was keen to get the SAS and D Squadron into the game. He felt his men, a vital operational, even strategic capability, were being underutilised, and the threat of the ground-based radar enabled him to, how shall we say, lean on Woodward and give D Squadron the opportunity he and they craved. Whatever the case, however, and there's no two ways about it, Woodward was taking an enormous gamble with enormous ramifications if a carrier was lost in the process. So seemingly against the better judgment of some, the raid was on. Frankly, Major Delves wasn't the only one who wanted out of this room. The whole of D-Squadron couldn't wait to get off the ship and inhabit a world they knew best, the battlefield. Down in the bowels of the ship, the men of D-Squadron prepped for the upcoming mission. Squadron Sergeant Major Laurie Gallagher went through the kit list and the operation plan one last time. The troopers were to carry with them a plethora of weapons, including explosive charges, a mortar, heavy machine guns, M16 assault rifles, and disposable laws, a light anti-tank weapon. Those planes wouldn't stand a chance. In 1982, the favoured kit used by the SAS was very different from the rest of the military. The reliable and American-made M16 assault rifle, having been used in Vietnam War for over a decade, was their weapon of choice. It was incredibly easy to maintain. It worked well in wet conditions and was relatively light. The law was a brilliant piece of kit. A small anti-tank weapon, it consisted of an extendable tube and a basic sight. Shoulder mounted, you would fire it at a vehicle, a group of people or a bunker, and then it would just be discarded. It was the modern day version of a bazooka from the Second World War. It was the perfect weapon for a raid like this. Once again, the weather tried to scupper the entire operation. That night, the wind was at near hurricane force, the ships being battered by the waves as they made their way towards the target. Eventually, there was enough of a break in the atrocious conditions for the operation to finally proceed. The three helicopters, loaded with troops, finally left the Hermes. But the terrible weather had meant the small flotilla had to be a lot closer to shore than the Admiral wanted. They were now horribly exposed. Not only that, they were behind schedule. They had to be in and out before daybreak, otherwise the ships would definitely be visible to the enemy. Major Delves thought about calling the operation off. There was suddenly more risk than originally planned for, but he held his nerve. In the green landscape of the pilot's MV goggles, the approaching choppers could see beams of light coming from Pebble Island. Captain Burrs and his men were using their hand torches with red filters attached in order to act as air marshals for the incoming helicopters. 
The red lights of the torches could hardly be seen by the naked eye. But with night vision goggles, they could be located at great distance by the approaching pilots. The three Sea Kings finally touched down in Phillips Cove and the troops unloaded with no dramas. Major Dells met with Tim Burrs, who gave him a sit rep. Conditions for the assault were good, but they were massively behind time. It was 4am. Ideally, the assault should be underway within a couple of hours, but they were still five miles from target, which they had to cover on foot. Boat troop would lead the men through the darkness towards the assault point, but they had to get a move on. They set off on a tab, a word used by the British Parachute Regiment that denotes a full-speed march. The SES are almost never inserted near their target on an operation like this. Helicopters obviously make a fair amount of noise, so the danger of flying close to a target is that you get attacked and you could be downed. You need to land far enough away that you can maintain surprise by approaching on foot Depending on the terrain, seven miles from a target is the absolute minimum distance a combat helicopter can't be heard. In this instance, they were safe because they landed behind a hill which shrouded the noise. Exhausted, they reached the first position, a body of inland water called Big Pond. The men were carrying a mountain of kit, including two four-kilogram mortar shells each which they dropped off in turn at the predetermined location for the mortar team. Having lightened their load significantly, the remaining men continued to the allocated attack positions. They now had just over an hour to assault, get out and board the Sea Kings at the RV point. Dawn was at 7.30am local time and it was now 6.10am. With the men finally in position, things started to move quickly. At 7.10am, under instruction, the mortar team fired a starburst shell, which was to illuminate the runway. This was the signal to go noisy, as the SAS called it. At the same time, HMS Glamorgan fired its huge four and a half inch guns. The first ordnance was a star shell for illumination which was then followed by high-explosive projectiles, which slammed into First Mountain, high above the airbase. This provided the SAS a fantastic distraction as they assaulted the strip. The Argentinians on the base must have been rudely awakened from their slumber. Loud bangs in the middle of the night can be extremely confusing and destabilising. This was, as modern forces would now call it, a classic shock and awe tactics, making soldiers think they are under attack from a larger force than they actually are. 19 troop, led by Captain Hamilton, immediately got stuck into the planes on the runway, firing laws, heavy machine guns and placing charges. One by one, each plane turned into a wreck, along with the guns of Glamorgan slamming into the mountain beside them. It must have been an amazing sight to behold. There were huge explosions as fuel lumps blew sky high, shadowy figures running around in the chaos and planes exploding. 
this was an operation the likes of which hadn't been seen since the Second World War. With 19 troops well engaged, Major Dells went to go and check on 16 troops. They had reached the western end of the airfield, but were inexplicably holding before their objective, the settlement. Their orders were to assault the buildings, to eliminate the enemy pilots and take out any other enemy soldiers that might also be there. The cause for concern, however, was a length of wire that ran across the ground they needed to cross to get to the buildings. Did this denote a minefield? They could withdraw, circle round and attack from the runway in, but this would take valuable time. After much discussion, the Major decided the risk was too great. Surprise had now been lost. Any Argentinian defenders in the building would certainly be aware of the attack and could be well prepared for an assault. Much to their disappointment, 16 Troop was told to stand down and hold its position to make sure no one from the buildings tried to counterattack. Suddenly, as if to confirm the men's suspicions of concealed ordnance, an enormous set of explosions occurred. Almost inexplicably, the Argentinians blew the grass runway in three places, destroying another of their planes in the process. Incredibly, apart from one SAS soldier thrown off his feet, which resulted in a concussion, thankfully, no one was injured it would now be impossible for any planes to ever use the runway. Weirdly, it almost seemed the Argentinians were helping the lads out, Delves Hall. Troops organising defence in all countries use a thing called a STAT plan, Surveillance, Target and Acquisition Plan. And this is using everything at your disposal to defend your position. If I were organising the defence of the airstrip, I would have definitely mined the ground surrounding it to prevent an attack just like this. Major Delbs absolutely took the right decision not to send 16 troops across that open land. Then shortly after, over the radio, came confirmation from Captain Burrs. All aircraft had been destroyed, including the one by the Argentines blowing up their own runway. It was time to get out. It was 7.30am and dawn was beginning to break. The men moved back to their rendezvous point by the edge of Big Pond. All the while, 18 troops keeping a lookout for an Argentinian counterattack. However, none came. At bang on 7.30, the three Sea Kings of the Royal Navy appeared out of the blue. The men boarded quickly foregoing the normal drills of extraction for speed. They had to get back to the retreating ships as fast as they could. Within 15 minutes, with the sun beginning to rise, Pebble Island was devoid of any SAS men. The raid, the largest the SAS had undertaken since the airfield attacks of the Second World War, was considered a complete success. 11 Argentinian planes, including valuable fuel dumps, were destroyed. 
This directly affected their ability to counter the British troop landings that would happen at San Carlos just days later. It was a sign of things to come. Argentina finally surrendered on the 14th of June 1982, one month exactly after the raid. There were only two minor injuries on Operation Prelim. One SAS trooper had shrapnel from a grenade in his leg, the other had concussion from the Argentinian mines on the runway. A couple of other soldiers had their hearing impaired for a few days too. I personally think Admiral Woodward made the right call to greenlight the operation, but it will remain to be a decision that will be argued over for many years to come. A final word from Julie. This raid is now considered to be a textbook operation in the regiment's history. The blow it dealt to the Argentinians on the ground would have had a real impact on their morale. This was their first ground forces contact on the islands and they were shown to be hugely wanting. I also think that the restraint that the SAS showed by not storming the buildings where the enemy pilots were located gave the British the higher moral ground we at the Combined Military Services Museum here in Malden have a large collection of SAS and SBS materials that would have been used on this and many other raids. In particular, we're very proud to own a howitzer which was taken from the Argentine forces at Port Stanley and still shows the strafing from the Harrier that was involved in the operation. We do also have the SAS equipment that was used at the Iranian Embassy siege. So please come and visit us in Essex if you want to learn more and have a great day out. To find out more about this amazing museum, please visit the show notes or our website, amazingwarstories.com. For the soldiers in D Squadron on Operation Corporate, some went on to have glittering careers. Major Cedric Delves ended up becoming a Lieutenant General. Captain Danny West, the tough Glaswegian, became the SAS's longest serving member, having completed over 30 years in the regiment. He sadly died in January 2022. Captain Tim Burrs also went on to serve with more distinction in the Falklands, playing a pivotal role in the Battle of Mount Kent, in which he received a military cross. But that's another story. Sadly, there was also some tragic regimental losses. Captain John Hamilton, CO of 19 Troop, who destroyed the planes, was killed on operation in the West Falkland Isles, defending a retreating colleague as they were attacked by Argentinian commandos. He too received an MC posthumously. However, the greatest loss for the SAS came just four days later on the 19th of May. A Sea King ferrying 27 SAS men from one ship to another crashed into the sea as a result of a bird strike. Sadly, nearly everyone on board perished, with only nine making it out alive. One of those who died was D Squadron Sergeant Laurie Gallagher. It was the largest loss of SAS life in a single event since the Second World War. Matt Hellier, who also runs the charity Pilgrim's Bandits, which this episode is supporting, talks about the effects it had on the regiment. Many of the survivors of that incident 
were left with severe PTSD and guilt after that horrifying accident. As much as we rightly hold members of the armed services in high esteem, we must also remember that they are human beings too. They are not supermen. We at the Pilgrim Bandits, like other veterans charities, are here to help rebuild lives. So it's really important that we remember the sacrifices that members of the services make and support them when they come out on the other side. For more information on this raid and other SAS operations in the Falklands, I can highly recommend the book Across an Angry Sea, written by the man who commanded the attack, Cedric Delves. Another fantastic book about this raid is Pebble Island by Francis McKay and John Cooksey. Notes on where to find these are on our website, amazingwarstories.com. Whilst you're at our website, please do consider backing this venture with a subscription if you can afford it. We don't charge the museums for raising their profiles, so we rely entirely on your generosity to keep our mission going. Also, don't forget to visit our shop. Everything you spend helps us continue to publicise military museums. There are some lovely items in there which would make wonderful gifts and it's all for a good cause. I really want to help these vital institutions in these difficult times. They've taken a financial battering and I'm worried that if we're not careful, the important stories they hold will become locked away from the public forever. So please do spread the word of what we're trying to do here. And if you can, please take the time to rate this podcast as it helps to be discovered by new listeners. One final thing, a word of thanks to the people, museums and organisations who free of charge gave up their time to help me tell this story. This episode of Amazing War Stories was researched, written and produced by Ed Sayer. The associate producer is Lois Crompton. Sound design and 3D mastering is by Vaudeville Sound and the music is by Extreme Music. <laughs>